morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the minor prophet Haggai. He's tucked back there at the end of the Old Testament. It's only two chapters long. If you have a hard time finding him, just go to the beginning of the book of Matthew and start going back a few pages at a time, and you will, you will pretty soon encounter Haggai. I appreciate Andrew and Braden's uh, willingness to bring the word last week while I'm recovering from surgery. Thanks for many of you who have asked. I'm doing really well pain-wise. Right now, the best description is if you've ever had a phone that had a bad battery and it doesn't want to charge and it dies really quick, that's kind of how I feel. I just drain pretty fast, but the Lord has been good and I trust he'll continue to be good. Haggai, chapter 2. We, uh, we've actually looked at this passage before several years ago, but uh, it fits really well with our, our text in Ephesians and the second service. And so we're done with our study of Revelation. We're, soon we're going to start that study on uh, the church and church membership, but Haggai chapter 2 is our text this morning, starting at verse 3 through verse 7. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Yeshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, fear you not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once It is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's begin by setting the stage for this text. According to verse 1 of this chapter, we can actually pinpoint this as the date is October 17th. 520 BC. About 70 years prior to our text, the people of Judah had been separated from their traditional worship of the Lord by the actions and directives of some evil leaders. They had been carried away into Babylonian captivity. I just want you to imagine for a moment the sad scene of Jerusalem surrendering after a long Babylonian siege and Many of the people dead. Those that are alive are are rounded up like cattle. Long lines of heartbroken, defeated Jews chained together, dragged down the road, down the mountain, away from the city, while up the mountain behind them, the temple of the Lord is dismantled piece by piece. Ezekiel, a prophet during that captivity, recorded the promises of God to bring them back out of that captivity. The people in this text have now been restored to their homeland. Now, 
Did everyone who left return? Obviously not. After, after 70 years, generations had changed. Some young folks had come home to a place that they had never actually seen before. Some of the old folks returned to the land that they barely remembered. They've come back to the ruins of Jerusalem and the ruins of the temple, and they are faced with two hard tasks. One, getting their lives back on track, and two, restoring the worship of God. They had done, at this point, really well with one of those jobs and had neglected the other. You may remember some of this story from our study in Ezra and Nehemiah many years ago. During, the, during this restoration, God sent two special prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, to encourage the people in the work that was to be done. Zechariah offered encouragement through, we'll say, symbolic visions. But these two little chapters of Haggai are very direct. You can glance back, just look back at at chapter 1, and you'll see the questioning of this prophet in chapter 1, verse 4. God asking, is it time for you to live in your sealed or your paneled houses, and this house, the temple of God, still lies waste? The idea of paneled houses just means well-appointed or are comfortable, but if you want to picture this as actual paneling, it might help you get the idea. God understood that the people needed a roof over their head and a warm place to sleep. The Lord was not opposed to them seeing their practical needs got met. But at some point, the temple needed to be rebuilt so their spiritual needs would be met. And the prophet Haggai is scolding the people, saying almost sarcastically, Okay, you've got the stylized wainscoting in your front room done now. Do you think you have time to work on the temple yet? I love that the prophet Haggai is just so wonderfully direct. You can see in chapter 1, verse 8, you can almost hear him through clenched teeth. These very short sentences. Go up the mountain, get the wood, build this house the oldest of the citizens of Judah would remember what it was to have a temple in which to worship. But the youngest of them had been born in captivity. They knew nothing of the temple other than the, the stories of their grandfathers and maybe the, the, uh, the hint of its glory because the mountainside is covered by these massive piles of rubble of the former temple. But young or old, whether they knew it or not, whether they thought it was time or not, they desperately needed to restore worship of God. The life of God's people is incomplete without formal worship. Y'all, if the Lord sent the prophet Haggai for us today, how many ways would he ask us the very same kind of question? Right? Is it right for you to dedicate so much of your attention to your personal desires and so little attention to the service of the Lord? Do you think it's right that your interest in serving your job or your family or your own comfort has such a place of priority over serving God? 
Or maybe he would tell us exactly what he told them. The, the time and effort that you've, you've dedicated to yourself is dramatically out of balance with the time and effort you're putting into worshiping and serving the Lord. We need to reset our priorities to acknowledge that the life of God's people is incomplete without worshiping and serving Him. A comfortable life is meaningless when it doesn't cry out in praise and worship of God. And so in our text in chapter 2, that work has in fact begun. Haggai 1 issued this call to restore worship In Haggai 2, exactly one month has passed. Obviously, the temple can't be built in a month, right? But the the ground markers have been planted. The the, the foundation has been laid. The the people have started to uh, see the fruit of their labor. And perhaps to their surprise or maybe to their dismay, it's just not living up to their expectations, And so once again, Haggai, the plain-spoken, blunt prophet of God, is sent with a message. I want to walk through this text together and see God's message through Haggai consists of three questions from God, three commands by God, and three commitments of God. The three questions from God, verse verse 1 sets the date, verse 2 details the audience you've got Zerubbabel who is the governor you have Yeshua's the high priest the residue or the remnant of the people right everybody else and verse three begins the message God asks three questions in verse three don't you love when somebody starts in with you by asking a bunch of questions who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? The first question is aimed at identifying those few people who actually knew what they were talking about. Comparisons between the grand old temple that had been destroyed and this new foundation that they laid were rampant. This new worship... Listen, it's just not going to live up to the glory of the old place. Of course, very few of them had actually seen that old place. Most of them building this temple had been born in captivity. The book of Ezra (coughs) records this scene in, in, in more detail. And if you want, you can turn to Ezra chapter 3 with me uh, for a moment if you want to read it, but when the, when the foundation of the new temple had lay, was laid, they had this uh, dedication ceremony and celebration. There was a big parade. There were singing by turns. Many were shouting with joy by the end of it, and some were weeping out loud with disappointment. Here's the description. Several years before our text in Haggai, Ezra 3, verses 10 through 13, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. They set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for his mercy endures 
forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud with joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. The foundation is laid, a celebration is held, some of the people rejoiced, some of the people wept and Ezra said there was so much crying and so much shouting that no one could distinguish one from the other. All they knew is, hey, we're all making a whole lot of noise here. This new temple, you could tell from the size of the foundation, it was not going to be as big. It was not going to be as beautiful and impressive and distinguished as the old one. Looking at this modest foundation, the old men thought, This is not the temple of my memories. And some of the young men thought, this doesn't remind me of the stories that Grandpa used to tell. And what happens in such situations? In situations like that, when there is some work to be done and a portion of the people are excited and another portion of the people are are apathetic and disappointed... Soon the enthusiasm from those who were excited about restoring worship is dampened by the disappointment of those whose expectations aren't being met. We should learn a a difficult lesson here. Apathy tends to be more infectious than enthusiasm. We know because while some are shouting, they're shouting this day that, hey, we've, we've finally started the work. We're ready to do the work. It's not long before the, the criers outweigh the shouters and soon the work's not being done at all. When all they did was sit around complaining, this isn't as good as the good old days, then they weren't actively involved in making their days any better. There is probably no group nowadays who revel in the good old days quite as much as Baptists do. But if we're honest for a moment, the good old days weren't that good. Unless you're old enough that the good old days you're talking about were back before Genesis chapter 3, then the good old days you're bragging about were the good old days of living in a sin-cursed world. Bible-believing people look forward To the good days. More on that in a moment. But let's ask these other two questions from verse 3. Right? How, How many of you remember the old temple? The second question, how do you see it now? Right? You saw the old temple. What do you think of the start of this new one? And the third question is actually a rhetorical question which answers the second. Isn't it... Isn't it in your eyes, in comparison, like nothing? In other words, you make this comparison and it just looks like nothing to you, right? Now I doubt any of us are looking at 
our worship service and our church today and saying, well, it's nothing. But there is a tendency that we can have to concentrate on the aspects of things that we find disappointing, that aren't meeting expectations, and thus we start to, to minimize the whole. Even as God sent this message to the prophet Haggai, he sent another message to the same people through the prophet Zechariah, the other of those two special prophets that he sent. And again, it's in the form of a question, but, but it was a question that was meant as a challenge. As Zechariah 4 verse 10, the question for those weeping over their disappointment was, who has despised the day of small things? It's almost like Zechariah was asking for a show of hands. So in Haggai, it was, what, do you, do you think that this, is, that this is nothing? In Zechariah, it was, well, will you despise this just because it's not as, as big and glorious, as grand as you hoped it would be? Will you doubt what God can do with something small? These three questions from God are meant to search our hearts. They're quickly followed by three commands by God. Look at verses 4 and 5 and see these three commands. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Yeshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear ye not. The tenor of the message dramatically changes in verse 4. You may remember sometime in the past when your, when your mama or daddy got serious about a command and employed the word now. That's how verse 4 starts. Now. There's really no doubt the Lord knows their disappointment in verse 3. Their expectations aren't being met. Their, their effort to restore worship feels hollow. And it has brought this sort of moment of crisis and how the people of God react to that critical moment when their expectations of how things ought to be aren't being met. God addresses them at that moment and says, Now. Here's what you have to do now. The first command is be strong. Three times the command is made, each time to some other person or group listed. Look at verse 4. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Yeshua. Be strong, all you people of Israel. Right? The political leader, Zerubbabel, the governor, the religious leader, Yeshua, the high priest, every person whom the Lord picked and placed in this land of promise, all of them are to be strong. The words, be strong, could easily be translated as take courage. The words of Haggai are, are actually sort of an, an echo or a reference to the book of Joshua. When he first took over the daunting task of leading the nation into the promised land, and the work ahead seemed too difficult to accomplish, God repeatedly told Joshua, be strong 
and of a good courage, for I am with you. Now Haggai takes up those words on behalf of this new generation of struggling saints and their return to the promised land and says, be strong, take courage. And in that sense, the timeless message of Scripture speaks to us as well. Be strong, be courageous. Well, well, how can we be strong? How can we obey courageously? Well, it says there in verse 4, I am with you. We have strength and we have courage knowing that God is with us. How could we estimate this day or any day as something small when it contains the omnipresent God in it with us? When reality doesn't seem to be meeting our expectations, what we really need to do is then uh, immediately make the, the presence of God in our hearts known to ourselves, to remind it to ourselves, to bring it to remembrance. Be strong, take courage, God is with us. The second command is only one word. Again, it's found in verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. Be strong, O Yeshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the Lord. Say, all you people of the land, saith the Lord. And work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Work. The worship of God is not a spectator sport. Worship is work. God demands your effort. I know there, there is a sense in which we, we come to worship and we think the act of coming to worship is this act of being filled, right? I, I, I come to, to worship on, on Sunday so I can get recharged. Look, we can leave here with full hearts, and we should leave here with full hearts. But worship is not alone an act of coming to God for refueling. Worship is an act of giving, not an act of getting. So if you ever leave worship service saying, I don't feel like I got anything out of that, you need to ask yourself, well, what did you bring to it? To give. Knowing this truth that worship is about giving and not getting also betrays our attitudes when we neglect our opportunities to worship. You can skip a lot of opportunities for worship when you think about church services as something I need or something I don't need. You'll do that a lot less when you admit worship isn't about what you get. It's about what God deserves. Saying, I need to do fill in the blank more than I need to be at worship is really saying, I deserve to do fill in the blank more than God deserves my worship. Saying, well, I don't need to be at all the worship services the church has. I get everything I need from one is to dramatically misunderstand the purpose of worship is not simply about what you need to get from God. It is about what God deserves to get from you. Worship is work. It is work that requires teamwork. Haggai's experience is pretty clear in telling us that that apathy toward the work 
is not only a detriment to yourself, it is also ultimately a discouragement to others who are ready to do the work. Now the work to which the citizens of Judah were being called was to physically build the temple. You, good news, you are not expected to build a temple. But you are commanded to do a work of building nonetheless. About 20 times in Paul's letters in the New Testament, he uses the term edify, or literally to, to build up. How you engage in that work of building up the congregation, the place and, and assembly that worships God, is going to differ. It might be the work to help with a fellowship meal. It might be just to attend and participate in outreach services like at Esther House or Rescue Mission. The work might be to, to pass out door hangers in the community or to help in the kitchen during VBS or to teach a class. The, the work of the church is to attend worship and to build one, up, uh, build one another up through mutual service. Just allow me to be blunt. Within our church, there is a small handful of individuals who are routinely committed to doing the work. And for those of you who have found yourself, you know, at, at one of the outreach services at Esther House or Rescue Mission or, or handing out door hangers or, or preparing VBS projects and you find yourself doing it mostly alone, I want you to know that God sees the work, God blesses the work, God does not consider that work to be a small thing, and neither should you. On the other hand, for those who never find themselves participating in the projects, the work of the church, or frequently absent from worship service in the church, you need to know that your lack of participation does not only impact yourself, it is a discouragement to others in the work that they're trying to do. Your apathy tends to be much more influential than anybody's enthusiasm. No believer is called to just watch. Every believer is called to work. I understand there are times the work seems hard, but look at the end of verse 4. God answers that natural objection to it being hard by saying, work for I am with you says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You can do the work to which you're called because you are not called to do the work alone. You're not expected to work alone. You've been given brothers and sisters in Christ to work with you, but more importantly than that, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, has promised to be with you in the work. The third command is found in verse 5. According to the word that I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains with you. Fear ye not. The third command is a prohibition, really. It's telling you what you're not allowed to do. Fear ye not. Y'all, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Are you afraid that you're not strong enough? Are you afraid the work is too hard? Don't be afraid. God's with you. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of armies. The, 
He, he promises his presence. It even adds in verse 5, my spirit is with you. The three questions God asked made it clear that the people were disappointed as they sought to restore worship. Their expectations weren't being met. And so God gives these three commands that will immediately answer their disappointment. Y'all, essentially think of it like this. The questions were aimed at getting their heads right. The commands were aimed at getting their hands right. You won't be disappointed when you be strong, work, and not be afraid. Or I'll say it this way. There is very little room in life for dissatisfaction when you live courageously, productively, and fearlessly in the presence and power of God. The next verses tell us what we'll find in that kind of life. It's not that suddenly our, our expectations will all be met. Instead, what we'll find is our real expectations have very little to do with the disappointment we see around us in the present or the good old days we remember in the past. Our greatest expectations are in the promises and plan of God for the future. Look at these three commitments of God in verse 6 and 7. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Here's why our disappointed expectations about the present or our fond remembrances of the good old days are of little consequence. God has committed himself to a future that will exceed all of our expectations and all of our experiences. It is just a little while, he tells them. That little while now is perhaps not in their lifetime, but it's not long in the scheme of history. God's plan for redemption was going to come to fruition. And while it is, this is not comprehensive of all his plans, it will include these three commitments that he makes in verses 6 and 7. First, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake the nations. The day is coming when the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, will execute his plans for this world. And in that day, the atmosphere, the, the planet that we walk, the water and dry land alike, every nation on earth is going to be shaken. It is going to be rattled with his coming. No portion of creation is going to be left unaffected. The world is going to tremble before its creator. Amos and Isaiah and, and Joel and Ezekiel all picture sort of the, the convulsions of creation when this day comes. This little verse tucked away in Haggai didn't escape notice of the New Testament writers. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 26 through 29, and you can look at it on your own, make a note of that passage. Hebrews 12, 26 through 29 pictures this shaking like putting the world into a strainer or a sieve 
And it, it is shaken until everything breaks apart, everything falls away, and all that's left is the unshakable, immovable kingdom of Jesus Christ. The second commitment of God is of Christ, the coming of Christ himself. Verse 7, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations, Haggai is promising. Think about this. They've, they've laid the foundation of that little temple and they are dissatisfied with it. They have despised that day because it seems like such a small thing. But if they could only see what God's going to do with this work that seems to them to be insignificant. The temple that they're building, that foundation, that is the one that the Messiah is going to enter. Somewhere on that foundation, Mary and Joseph are going to carry an infant Jesus into the temple. Somewhere on that foundation, a 12-year-old Jesus is going to, to sit and amaze the scribes and the teachers. Somewhere on that foundation, Rabbi Jesus is going to stand and shout that he is the light of the world and anyone who comes to him doesn't have to be in darkness anymore, but will have the light of life. Just as they awaited the coming of Jesus, the desire of nations, we are awaiting his second coming right so the lord's church the assembly is where worship is to be offered until he returns a part of god's plan for shaking the world is to bless the nations all nations of the earth through jesus god has people of every kindred and language and people and nation in that sense the desire of nations is Jesus himself in every remote corner of the world, there are those like us who desire his coming. The final commitment is, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Y'all, this is the end goal of all work and worship for the Lord. That God would be glorified. No doubt some of those in Haggai's day thought the end goal of worship, the end goal of their work was to somehow make something that just looks impressive in human eyes. I mean, how could we really worship in a a tiny temple when the old temple was so huge and covered in silver and and, and gold and it was so much more impressive? But look down after our text in verses 8 and 9, you'll see what God tells them. The silver belongs to the Lord. The gold belongs to the Lord. The glory of this new little temple is going to exceed the glory of the former temple. It's going to have glory that is even greater than the former temple. And all the glory belongs to the Lord. Because the Lord of glory himself, Jesus, God incarnate, is going to fill that place. What's it matter if the men there were disappointed because the prospect of worship in this new temple wasn't meeting their expectations? What's at the heart of true worship? What's 
What's better, just this massive citadel with hollow holes or a, a modest temple where God says, I'll fill that place for my glory. The glory of God through his son, Jesus Christ, is the end goal of all worship and work in all places at all times. And we know that God receives glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. We live and we assemble and we worship and we work for the glory of God. Be strong. Do the work. Don't be afraid. The Lord of hosts, the God of armies, the the shaker of heaven and earth, the desire of all nations, he is with us in our worship and work. May he fill this house with his presence today for his own glory.